Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Hello, this is Martin Grote with another article from Forbes magazine, June-July 2022 issue. A pair of articles together, Over a Barrel by Chris Hellman and Refueling Europe by Matthew Mahan, starting on page 103. The pandemic killed demand for oil and gas, leaving the world vulnerable to Vladimir Putin's supply-side punch. The upside? Widespread shortages and $8 a gallon gasoline will finally force meaningful investment in alternatives, and even pariahs like nuclear and wood. It was February 2020. Travel restrictions hadn't yet hit Europe, and the big shots of oil were gathered in London for International Petroleum Week. At an invitation-only dinner, commodities trader Pierre Andurand offered a startling prediction. As COVID-19 spread, countries would lock down, storage tanks would fill up, and the price of oil would go to zero. The French-born, Oxford-trained mathematician had studied the early medical reports out of Wuhan, China, and was so sure of this scenario that his hedge funds, now with $1.7 billion under management, had taken big short positions in crude oil futures. By the time prices fell below zero that April 20th, Andoran Capital's funds had bank gains ranging from 60% to 155%. In early February of this year, the trader made another attention-grabbing call. Crude oil would surge in 2022 to $150 a barrel as post-pandemic demand, goosed by massive central bank stimulus, collided with years of declining investment in fossil fuels and underinvestment in alternatives. And that was before Vladimir Putin delivered a supply-side sucker punch with his February 24th invasion of Ukraine. Andorad, whose biggest fund is up another 112% year-to-date through April, now expects oil prices to go even higher, with $200 a barrel possible. In coastal centers, that translates to $8 a gallon at the pump. Putin decided to invade now because the market was tight, he says. The war accelerated where I felt we were headed, to a shortage. It's going to get worse from here, echoes Fort Worth, Texas billionaire John Goff, chairman of Crescent Energy. He's been scooping up depressed oil assets since 2019. The world is woefully underinvested. Energy transition policies are naive, and demand has yet to peak, he adds. I'm all for green energy, but we need a real plan. Skeptics might point out that as of late May, a full three months after Putin's invasion, oil futures were still bobbing around $110 a barrel. But that's only because China's strict COVID lockdowns have temporarily depressed demand, and America is releasing a million barrels daily from its strategic reserves. Realistically, the only thing that can save the world from $200 a barrel oil is a nasty recession, which is hardly good news. But there's another, more hopeful way to look at the global energy crisis. It could prompt those with the most capital to fast-track creative solutions and force politicians to get out of the way. That means everything from green-lighting new nuclear plant designs to building better batteries and grids for storing and distributing solar and wind energy. There's even a place for quick fixes like burning wood pellets instead of coal. This would represent a reversal from recent years during which fossil fuel investment has cratered. 
Germany and Japan have shuttered nuclear plants, and not-in-my-backyard activists have blocked hundreds of wind farms in the U.S. alone. This decade is going to be one that is structurally bullish for the energy market. There's more discipline today, plus you're trying to make up for seven years of underinvestment, says John Arnold, who retired from active energy trading a decade ago at just 38. In recent years, the billionaire philanthropist has put money into solar farms, nuclear fusion, deep water oil production platforms, and more. He's particularly keen to see a regulatory rewrite, making it easier to win approval for energy grids linking urban areas with rural places where wind and solar energy are generated. If we really feel like climate change is an existential threat to society, then we need to act like it. You can't give everyone a veto on every project. Refueling Europe The immediate challenge for the West, replacing the Russian natural gas that powers much of Europe, so factories can keep humming and homes can stay warm next winter. By the end of this year, the continent hopes to replace two-thirds of its pre-war Russian imports of 155 billion cubic meters, that's 5.4 trillion cubic feet, a year. Half of that will come from new imports of liquefied natural gas, LNG, versus just 20% from renewables. To make LNG, gas is chilled down to minus 260 degrees Fahrenheit, turning it into a liquid that can be transported across the ocean in giant insulated tankers. The Europeans are gearing up to receive LNG on floating regasification facilities. Finding enough LNG to buy, and tankers to ship it, will be tough. I don't think there's an LNG operator in the world who's not producing every molecule they can, says Michael Smith, the billionaire chairman, CEO, and 63% owner of Freeport LNG, a Texas liquefaction complex that is the U.S.'s second largest. He has sold most of its output to Asia under long-term contracts, though much of that LNG is now being resold to Europe. It's not enough. In March, President Joe Biden and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announced a deal for the U.S. to send an additional 525 billion cubic feet of LNG to Europe this year, and even more in the future. The U.S. can export more LNG, but it will take time and new capital. The nation went from being the world's biggest fossil fuel importer in 2005 to a net exporter, thanks to the rapid adoption of horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing techniques, a.k.a. fracking. By 2015, U.S. frackers were drilling so much oil and gas that energy prices tanked. Some players went bankrupt, while survivors came under intense pressure from investors to start paying down debt, and from environmental activists to clean up their act. Over the last five years, according to consultants Wood McKenzie, U.S. investment in fossil fuels averaged just $400 billion a year, down from $750 billion during fracking's heyday. Europe has shale formations too, but it never joined the fracking party. On that continent, governments, not private landowners, usually retain mineral rights. Politicians had no incentive to fight anti-fracking sentiment when they could just buy Russian gas. Now that is no longer an option. Billionaire Wesley Edens is one LNG newcomer bringing capital to the game. A co-owner of the NBA's Milwaukee Bucks, Edens, 60, made his first fortune as a co-founder of Fortress Investment Group, a private equity shop he sold to SoftBank in 2017. 
Now he's CEO of publicly traded New Fortress Energy, which is developing what it calls fast LNG. Modular natural gas liquefaction units are built in a shipyard and installed on repurposed offshore oil platforms. We're trying to pursue the Model T factory model for LNG, says Edens, whose 35% stake in New Fortress is worth more than $3 billion. He plans to put the first fast LNG plant 16 miles offshore of Grand Isle, Louisiana, and says working that far from the coast should make approvals faster. If the White House follows through on its stated policy of streamlining permits, Eden says, he could ship his first cargoes early next year. The profits are there. Europeans are paying $22 per thousand cubic feet for natural gas, two and a half times the U.S. price. The only commodity you cannot buy is time, Eden says. Lots of time has already been lost. In 2015, billionaire activist investor Carl Icahn forced LNG pioneer Sharif Saouki out as CEO of Chenier Energy, a company Saouki launched in 1996. His sin? Rather than pay shareholders like ICANN bigger dividends, Saouki, who was convinced shortages were coming, wanted to build yet another expensive LNG complex. Seven years later, the 69-year-old Soki's new company, Tellurian Energy, has finally begun construction of the $12 billion first phase of a similar project on 1,000 acres of coastal Louisiana, south of Lake Charles. The earliest he can start shipping? 2026. Presumably by then, more natural gas will be available to liquefy. Production is coming back. In mid-May, there were 750 drilling rigs operating in the U.S., up from 453 a year ago, but still down two-thirds from the 2,000 running during the fracking boom. Drillers are limited by a lack of skilled fracking crews, shortages in rigs and drilling sand, and an overhang of debt. Ramping up takes six months, says oil billionaire Harold Hamm, 76, whose family owns 80% of Continental Resources, one of the nation's largest frackers. With drilling costs rising 15% a year, he's more interested in using the oil and gas price spike to pay down debt. He has time on his side. The 3 million barrels per day, BPD, of disappearing Russian production won't be quickly replaced. Bernstein Research estimates that OPEC has just 1.5 million BPD of extra capacity now. Saudi Aramco plans to add another 1 million by 2027. Regardless of the timing, history suggests the West would be foolish to become even more reliant on an autocratic regime. Clear now. Nobody believes it until it finally happens, says Ajay Royan, managing partner of Mithril Capital, which invests billionaire venture capitalist Peter Thiel's money. Back in 2014, Mithril put about $1 million into Everett, Washington-based Helion Energy, one of a handful of companies now getting closer to the decades-old dream of generating energy through nuclear fusion. That's the process of knocking hydrogen atoms together into helium. It's what takes place in the core of the sun. Helion counts Facebook co-founder Dustin Moskowitz and LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman among its investors, and recently raised $500 million at a $3 billion valuation. Also in the fusion race is Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Commonwealth Fusion Systems. 
it has raised $1.8 billion from another crowd of billionaires, including Bill Gates, Laureen Powell Jobs, John Doerr, George Soros, and John Arnold. The CEOs of both Helion and Commonwealth predict nuclear fusion will be producing commercial energy within a decade. Along with these moonshot efforts, billionaires are also pouring money into newer, safer designs for nuclear fission reactors, as a nuclear renaissance looks even more likely. That's significant, because despite all the attention paid to alternatives, fossil fuels, gas, oil, and coal still make up 80% of all energy used worldwide, not much less than two decades ago. One reason is that nuclear power, as a share of world energy, has not only stopped growing but has actually shrunk from 7% to 5% over that period. After the 2011 disaster at Japan's Fukushima nuclear plant, Japan and Germany mothballed nuclear reactors, offsetting nuclear growth in China. In the U.S., new nuclear plants have been largely stalled since the Three Mile Island accident in 1979. The political winds are shifting. California is debating whether to save the Diablo Canyon reactor, slated for decommissioning in 2025, despite having decades of life left. Japan is slowly bringing some of its reactors back online. France, with the most nuclear capacity in Western Europe, is moving to reinvigorate its industry. A fifth of its 56 reactors are currently offline. Gates is a nuclear power booster. He describes it as the only carbon-free energy source that can work almost anywhere 24 hours a day. In 2008, he co-founded TerraPower, which has developed, in concert with GE, Hitachi Nuclear Energy, the Natrium Reactor, a fast reactor fueled with low-enriched uranium that sits in a meltdown-proof pond of molten salt, which doubles as long-term energy storage. In 2018, amid rising tensions with China, the U.S. government scuttled TerraPower's plan to build its first natrium reactor in China. But now, the Department of Energy has agreed to provide up to $2 billion, roughly half the cost, to build the first commercial-scale natrium reactor in Wyoming at the site of a retiring coal-fired generator owned by a subsidiary of Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Others share Gates' enthusiasm. In 2018, Brookfield Business Partners, run by billionaire Canadian asset manager Bruce Flatt, paid $4.6 billion for Toshiba's worldwide nuclear operations, including the then-bankrupt Westinghouse Electric Company. Westinghouse is now completing two new AP-1000 reactors for Atlanta-based Southern Company in Georgia and has four on order from China. It has already built four there, plus a six-reactor deal in Poland. The AP-1000 is a pressurized water reactor, similar to the almost 100 reactors currently operating in the United States, but it's considered safer because it has a simpler design and more fail-safe systems. It relies on gravity and water, not backup electric power, to contain and cool a meltdown, which should make it an easier sell to nervous politicians and voters. Sun, wind, wood. It's not just nuclear fusion that requires patience and deep pockets. You can't just go out and flip a switch and turn on renewables, says Denver tycoon Phil Anschutz. He spent 16 years getting all the permits and easements in place to build 700 wind turbines on 100,000 acres in Wyoming, plus a high-voltage line to get the juice to Las Vegas. 
he needed a permit to kill some golden eagles and an easement to cross a sage-grouse habitat, but has finally started construction. Wind generation grew 12% and solar 21% worldwide last year. That's not fast enough. But there are some promising developments, including breakthroughs in battery technology, crucial to storing intermittently generated solar and wind power. Yet battery makers face global shortages of copper, nickel, and lithium. Charles Koch, whose Koch Industries is a major oil refiner, is hardly renowned as an environmentalist. But if clean energy is to have a chance, pragmatism and profit motive must rule the day. Now 86, Koch, the world's 21st richest person, has invested $1.7 billion since early 2021 into solar and battery solutions, including battery recycling, using iron instead of cobalt, and 3D battery printing that cut the need for exotic materials and can be scaled up. It's a shotgun approach. When it comes to alternatives, perfect is the enemy of the good, says Jeffrey Ubin. In 2020, at 58, Ubin retired from Value Act, the $12.5 billion activist hedge fund he ran for 20 years, to manage $3 billion in assets, including capital partners. He sits on the board at ExxonMobil, where he's pushing carbon sequestration initiatives, and Enviva, the world's biggest wood pellet company. Its ten plants in six southeastern states take trees and scraps from sustainable forestry operations and press them into six million tons a year of three-inch-long pellets, which are shipped to customers in the United Kingdom and Japan who burn them in power plants instead of coal. The southeast is the Saudi Arabia of wood, Ubin quips. In Viva, CEO John Kepler says he can double output by 2027. Environmentalists have qualms, but Ubin says this is a smart, short-term fix. I don't think wood pellets is the end game, he says. There's another natural short-term fix. As Russian energy disappears from the market, prices will surge until the global economy slows down enough to reduce demand. In time, the problem will be solved, but not without short-term pain and massive investment, especially in non-fossil fuels. The International Energy Agency figures the world needs to double its current spending on alternative energy and invest a total of $12 trillion by 2030 to have any chance of holding global warming to 2 degrees Celsius. Still, there's room for optimism. If we adopt an all-of-the-above approach to alternatives and don't let excessive government relation and nimby naysayers stand in the way, John Arnold says, over the long term, he observes, Society has done a great job of delivering ever-cheaper energy. And that concludes the articles Over a Barrel by Chris Hellman and Refueling Europe by Matthew Mahan. If you'd like to find out more about Airs LA and the types of programs we offer, follow us by clicking on any of the social media links on the Airs LA web pages. If you like what you see or hear, please click the like button. Airs LA is a 100% voluntary organization whose purpose is to provide information to those who are blind or print-impaired. This is Martin Grote. I'm proud to be one of those volunteers, and I'll be back soon with other articles from Forbes magazine. Thank you for listening. <laughs>